0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Total Wine & More. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, find what you love and love what you find at Total Wine & More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly. B21.
1: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Train Technologies, challenging what's possible for a sustainable world. Train Technologies is reducing one gigaton of emissions from their customers' footprint by 2030. See how they're doing it at TrainTechnologies.com.
2: This is The Pulse, stories about the people and places at the heart of health and science. I'm Mike and Scott. The 1893 World's Fair in Chicago had a lot of thrilling exhibits. The original Ferris wheel, electric lights. But one of the biggest attractions was a guy in his underwear, a very muscular showman named
3: Eugene Sandow kind of flexing and preening and he's (laughs) he's packing the theater every night with people who are lining up to see this curiosity this is historian natalia melman petrozzella almost this kind of freak show act this is something that you went to go see the way you would see the bearded lady or what they called at the time the siamese twins right the fattest man etc it was a peculiar thing You can find old films of Sandow. He had six-pack abs, a really strong back. This guy who spends so much time on his muscles and then goes and shows them off. And to me, it's this really interesting moment where exercise was a performance. But he was not an early version of today's fitness influencers. From my understanding of that period, nobody in that audience looked at Sandow and was like, "Ugh, I should really be working out. That kind of guilty feeling was not yet part of our culture. Fast forward to
2: today, where we're bombarded with messages from people who are all about fitness, showing us that we too can get into shape. It's a habit many of us try to cultivate, myself included. I lift weights a couple of times a week. Whoa, okay, one, two. On this episode, exercise and the role it plays in our lives. How does it affect our health, our brains and well-being? We'll also check out different approaches to getting in shape. To get started, let's stick with historian Natalia Melman-Petrozzella. She tracks the evolution of fitness from muscles as sideshow attraction to multi-billion dollar industry in her new book. It's called Fit Nation, The Gains and Pains of America's Exercise Obsession. And she knows this subject not just as a historian, but also as a fitness instructor. She teaches a technique called intensity. It's a combination of martial arts, dance, and affirmation. So you're
3: punching and saying, I am strong. I am powerful. I am powerful. And it's a whole room of people doing this together. And so it sounds really corny and I was skeptical for the first couple times, but I realized I'm not only getting an incredible workout, but I feel kind of inspired to go about the rest of my day in, from a more peaceful, enlightened, optimistic position. So in her latest book,
2: Natalia combines her love of fitness and history, tracing how fitness became such a big part of our culture. She says this trend started in
3: the late 19th century. Really, the shift happens in multiple ways. But one is the federal government actually doing a lot of work to say you know what? Fitness isn't this weird thing that's just physical and superficial and narcissistic. It's actually about being a good citizen. You see that articulated in the New Deal with groups like the Civilian Conservation Corps, where they're saying, young men, you know, come out and work for your country and you can do these public works projects. And it puts muscle on your bones. And so the idea is that a muscular body is one who's doing national service. That really takes off in the 1950s fifties and sixties in the cold war where people like president eisenhower and jfk are saying you know what the big peril is we have in facing the russians we are a nation of soft americans and we need phys ed and rigorous physical fitness to get us in shape to be fit to fight A country
4: uh, is as strong, really, as its citizens.
3: That's President John F. Kennedy speaking
2: about the importance of fitness in 1962.
4: And I think that mental and physical health, mental and physical vigor, go hand in hand.
3: But what's fascinating is there's not that much investment in actually creating the infrastructure to create equal access and opportunity to exercise. So there's this like reputational improvement, but it's really a private industry that seizes that and runs with it until today. And I'm wondering
2: how much our changing work environments played a role, the change in nutrition, you know, as the nation became more prosperous And as the nature of work changed, more people were now not doing physical work, more people had access to a lot of food. So we see kind of the waistline expand and activity going down. So that I'm sure must have influenced some of this thinking as well.
3: Oh, absolutely. It's the rise of kind of the service economy and more sedentariness in everyday American life. And you see that even starting in the 1920s, where once industrialization means there's more food in this country and more abundance, an attractive body really becomes someone who has the discipline to resist those pleasures rather than to partake in them. And there's this real ambivalence. Let's start with the 1920s, but you see it again in the 1950s where, you know, white middle-class men are increasingly working at desk jobs. And that's on the one hand supposed to be evidence of their superiority, right? These in a very racist society are the best men and what's the proof? They don't need to be like lifting things with their hands, they get to be using their minds. On the other hand, There's all this justified fear in a lot of ways around desk diseases and the fact that their bodies are kind of wasting away because they're not using them physically. And so what happens then, you get this first wave of kind of exercise entrepreneurs and a sensibility that if you are sitting all day working, you need to be deliberately purposefully exercising. But I think that is a really interesting kind of moment where you see like, on the one hand, this is about prosperity in America, but that prosperity has bodily impacts and uh, exercise emerges as a way to redress those. Now,
2: if we think about, you know, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, you describe a lot of the different like fitness crazes in your book.
3: What are some that really stick out to you? one that is worth uh, thinking about for me absolutely are the kind of reducing salons and slenderizing spas these were these rooms that you would go to and they'd have these machines with these belts that women mostly would stand in and they would kind of shake you and the idea was that it would shake away your cellulite and shake away your fat and kind of tone up your body and what i found so interesting about them besides the fact that they were these big clunky machines is the way they were marketed they were marketed marketed with lines like, no movement necessary, relax and luxurious comfort, no sweating at all. And I find that so funny because it was this interesting moment when, yeah, women were expected to kind of do body work and to you know tone their bodies and to modify their bodies through something which was a little like exercise. But there were still these really dominant ideas that a lady shouldn't be sweating. A lady shouldn't be doing something athletic. That could hurt her.
2: That changed with fitness classes like aerobics, jazzercise, step classes, all very dance-based and
3: geared toward women. Then you have spinning come along. It brought men into what had been the very, very predominantly female world of group exercise. And why is that? Not only do you not have to be on the beat because you're on a bike, it's also kind of quasi-athletic because it comes out of the cycling world, which allows it to be sort of more normatively masculine. And I think all of that is just so important in expanding the sense of certainly group fitness, but also kind of commercial gym culture to also include really straight men who were seen as, you know, oh, they don't do that kind of thing. It's kind of feminine or it's for gay men. And so I think that's another really important trend, which is more than a trend. It really transformed the industry. When do we see a bit of a pivot to start talking more maybe about strength or health or being, you know, happy? I do think it's in that period of the 1990s. I think that comes through for a range of reasons. Two major ones, I think, are one, you know, this is the era that sports historians call that of the daughters of Title IX. It's the era when a generation of, you know, young women, older teen girls never knew a world in which they were not legally guaranteed access to sport. So there's this kind of collective sense that like, yeah, I can be strong and physically active. And like, I'm not just working my body to be thin and pretty. Like that's not the only purpose. So I think that sensibility shift really evolved the other thing that i think is really important is that it's really in the 1990s when the yoga world and the fitness world really fuse in important ways the language of yoga which is about so much more than the physical body really infuses the fitness world in a way that it had not before so people are talking about enlightenment about having a practice rather than going to a class and it kind of really steps up the rhetoric around exercise to be so much more about what we would come to call wellness or self-care and the gym is where i think a lot of people find it in meaningful ways
2: where do you feel like we are in terms of fitness as a country you know there there is this like total obsession with fitness that we see pop up everywhere whether it's on social media or at gyms and then there is the reality of of obesity and disease that is unparalleled in the world. And somehow these two things live side by side. So uh, where are we going with this? And do you see any signs that maybe... We are coming toward a healthier place. I
3: think we are at this really interesting moment where, as a society, we pretty much agree exercise is good. More exercise and more opportunities for exercise is a positive thing. It's remarkable. We have general consensus on that fact in a moment where we disagree on pretty much everything else and so that to me feels like a win the issue is even as we agree that exercise is good and there are more people should do it we have not come far enough in that consensus to actually have a policy framework to enable that access and so to me that's really the next step what would a kind of bipartisan coalition look like to say you know we need safer streets we need better lit parks. We need access to sports. We need phys ed programs that are well-funded. And I don't see any kind of policy work right now, which is really taking that on.
2: Natalia Melman-Pedrezella is an associate professor of history at the New School in New York City. Her book is called Fit Nation, The Gains and Pains of America's Exercise Obsession. We're talking about fitness and getting in shape. Exercise is connected to culture in many ways. Why and how people exercise, whether it's part of their lives at all, what role it plays. And some forms of exercise have deep historical and cultural roots. Alan Hinich visited a small studio in Philadelphia, decorated with lots of bright colors and Brazilian flags. It teaches a type of Afro-Brazilian martial art called capoeira that's been around for centuries. A game is about to begin.
4: Three people are holding instruments. A hand drum, a tambourine, and a single string bow. The rest of the group forms a circle. Two people step into the middle, tap hands, and then they cartwheel and start throwing kicks at each other. As an outsider, it looks like an acrobatic dance. There are handstands and somersaults, people move in and out of the circle, but it's not really a dance at all. It's practice for a fight, disguised as a dance. And the goal is to dominate space, to drive the other person out of the center of the circle. So
5: that was good. Because everything in the planet is about rhythm. Everything is about rhythm. You have a rhythm, you go far.
4: That's club director Nilson dos Santos, or mestre Doutor, as the students call him. The title mestre signifies his top rank in capoeira, which took decades to achieve. And Doutor means doctor in Portuguese. It's his nickname for also being a nurse. Mestri was born in the north of Brazil and brought capoeira to Philadelphia nearly 30 years ago.
5: Leave Brazil, leave everything, my family, my brothers and sisters, friends, leave everything behind to start a new life.
4: To understand why this martial art masquerades as a dance, we have to go back to the roots of capoeira, back to colonial Brazil in the 1500s a time when hundreds of thousands of Africans were trafficked across the Atlantic by Portuguese settlers and enslaved along with indigenous people.
5: What happened when the slaves came to Brazil with the Indians, they just fused together and then capoeira.
4: By fusing African music with indigenous acrobatics, Capoeira became a way for enslaved people to practice fighting while not catching the eyes of their oppressors. Over time, this ritual also became a means for preserving identity and spirituality. That's why people who practice the sport today still use the same instruments like the panderu, a tambourine. Agogó, a double bell.
5: No, like it's from, not, yeah, it came, yeah. came, came from a tree, it from a tree yes. Oh. So and the like iconic
4: single stringed you know, bow. The beating bow, which looks like a fishing rod. Uh, what's the history of the uh, of the
5: instrument? Where, where does it well, come from? Well this is the beating bow is being proven, is original from Africa, not Brazil. But they came <laughs> They came in a memory of slavery in Brazil because they're not allowed to take anything. But a capoeira is original from Brazil. So what happened, we got that gift from Africa was the music, the the, the rhythm. One, two, three, for samba, for capoeira.
4: After slavery was abolished in 1888 in Brazil, capoeira became criminalized, and the only way of practicing for decades was to do it in secret. To avoid getting caught by the police, capoeiristas would come up with nicknames for each other. It became a tradition that still holds more than a century later. My capoeira name is Da Vinci. They call me Contra Mestre I
2: would
6: answer to Hannah or I would answer to Coruja, that's my capoeira name.
4: It wasn't until the 1930s that the practice became legal. But even then, police cracked down on capoeira groups because they associated the sport with crime.
5: Brazilian government, especially the, the the militaries, and they come without no warnings, hitting people or running the horse in the top of the middle of the circle.
4: Yet capoeira persevered, and now it thrives as one of Brazil's most popular sports, thanks to schools that help formalize the practice and attract international support, like this one. Mestre's students alone have spread all over the world, opening their own clubs.
5: That's in California, and Arizona, Ohio, North Carolina. I have a student in my have a school in Japan, uh, Japan and another one in China. So Guatemala, I have a student. All came from Philly. When, 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 did, uh, when,
4: did it grow... when I first approached Mestri about doing a story on capoeira, he insisted that I try it myself. But I never got past the white belt in karate when I was a kid. I'd given up on kicks and spins a long time ago. But after leaving that first session, I just couldn't get the sound of the beating bow out of my head. It pulsed and it pulsed, and I imagined how it would feel to pull off a handstand, or a cartwheel. So, I came back. I tried handstands and almost fell on my back. I couldn't lift my legs high enough for a decent kick. When I entered the center of the circle, everyone took it easy on me. But it's not like that for everyone. Another student got tripped in the middle of a kick. If you fall, you lose the round. But at the end of class, there are no winners or losers, Just a half-hour sermon for Mestri about how to dominate space.
5: So your job is to take the space away right away. If you don't have space, you cannot do that much.
4: I can't do that much anyway. (laughs) Mestri emphasizes that capoeira is all about finding balance within the chaos of the circle. From fighting pair to pair, between the kicks and the rhythm, but also within oneself. And then applying that balance to the rest of your life. Before I go, I ask Mestri one more thing.
5: Which is your uh, your favorite song? In capoeira, mm-hmm. for me, it has to be happy one because that's what capoeira represents for me—a a happy happiness for everybody. Um, it can take you out of depression. It can give you weight of life they can, like they give to me. But I like it most songs like uh, happy one, energized, happy one, make you happy. Like I don't have
2: to. that story was reported by Alan Hinage.
5: <laughs> Bonito. <laughs>
2: Coming up, what neuroscientists are learning about the impact of exercise on the brain,
7: and it has this profound effect where you're you're really in the moment, enjoying the moment.
2: That's next on the Pulse.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Solgar. As people age, cellular function declines, which may impact changes in energy and strength. Solgar Cellular Nutrition is a holistic collection of cellular nutrients formulated to help fight cellular decline and promote cell health. Learn more at cellularnutrition.solgar.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.
2: This is the pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. We're talking about fitness and exercise. Now let's take a closer look at exercise and the brain. When Jennifer Hayes was in grad school studying neuroscience, exercise was the last thing on her mind.
7: I wasn't super active. I would call myself mostly sedentary like a sedentary scholar. But then she started to have serious anxiety
2: and intrusive thoughts. She was hesitant about turning to medication. Instead, she turned to her friend's rusty old road bike. Biking made her
7: feel better. It reduced her anxiety. And it has this profound effect where you're you're really in the moment, enjoying the moment. This caused me to have a shift not only in my personal life, where I made exercise a priority, but also my professional life, where I started to study the impacts of exercise on the brain.
2: Jennifer is a neuroscientist and she directs the NeuroFit Lab at McMaster University in Ontario, Canada. She runs experiments on how exercise impacts brain cognition and how we feel. How about the impact on mood? It seemed like for a while the research went back and forth on how exercise or whether exercise actually improved mood. Was it about releasing certain feel-good hormones or what was actually happening?
7: Yeah. So there was quite a lot of controversy around runner's high in particular. And this is that euphoric feeling that some runners get when they're out for a run. And originally that was thought to be driven by endorphins. So endorphins are like the body's natural painkiller. The body produces this natural form of like kind of like morphine, it's a natural form of painkiller, and this is partly why it feels so good, you know, because we're relieved of our pain. Now, the original research measured endorphins through a blood sample, so a peripheral circulating endorphins, and it turns out that endorphins that are in the body are actually too big to cross the blood brain barrier, and so scientists had to rethink the whole theory. Well, if the endorphins can't get from the body into the brain, then what's causing this runner's high? So this caused scientists to look at different molecules. And one that became really important is endocannabinoids. And endocannabinoids are the body's natural form of cannabis. And so these endocannabinoids are small enough to cross the blood-brain barrier. And what they do is they interact with several different systems, including the reward system of the brain, allowing for the release of dopamine, which helps to reinforce the behavior.
2: Huh. So it's just like a different mechanism than scientists had previously assumed.
7: Yes, but actually it turns out endorphins are actually still involved, but the brain produces its own. And those are the ones involved in runner's high together with the endocannabinoid. So it's like this synergistic effect. And in fact, researchers have even found these like hedonic hotspots in the brain where both endorphins and endocannabinoids connect together and have this really powerful effect. And where are they? (laughs) In the reward system. (laughs) And how do we tap into those? What you can do is you can kind of hijack the system a little bit. You can listen to your favorite music. This helps to kind of prime the reward system, release dopamine. And then you can start exercising, which will release the endocannabinoids, And this can help sort of stimulate the the system a little bit more. Even better, do it with someone who you really like to be with. So this moving with people we like and even actually moving in synchrony with people we like seems to help reduce that level of pain that we feel. Jennifer says
2: exercise, even just a little bit, increases blood flow to the brain and it can improve cognition. What do we know about the impact of exercise on longevity and maybe especially memory function?
7: Oh, yeah. Exercise for brain health in aging is so important, especially when it comes to dementia risk. Research from my lab shows that physical inactivity contributes to your dementia risk as much as your genetics. And so we often think, our risk for dementia is sort of out of our control but this research suggests that no it's not our lifestyle plays a much bigger role than we would have imagined and so how can people exercise to prevent dementia well this is a really important area of focus for my lab and some of our research is showing that older adults may need to push it a little bit <laughs> and now so what do i mean by that well One of our studies, we showed that we had sedentary older adults come into the lab and they either did a regular walk or they walked with intervals. So every now and then they would pick up the pace and they would exercise at an intensity that was hard for them to talk. And it was over the course of that training that it was the interval walking that was really beneficial for memory. So we saw an incredible boost in memory performance for the older adults who did interval walking compared to regular walking. You know, I often see older adults in my neighborhood, they're, you know, out for a self-paced walk with their partner, with their friend. And I just, we just need to like pick it up a bit, you know, (laughs) pick up the pace between light posts, add in a few hills, get to the point where at least at some points in your walk... It's difficult for you to have that conversation. You're only able to say a few words, but the full sentence is not coming out. I
2: guess it's it's like that with exercise at any stage. If, if it feels like you're just on autopilot and you can do it without even breaking a sweat, then it's probably not quite getting the results that you're looking for.
7: Well, for some things, for neuroplasticity, for sure. But for anxiety relief, it doesn't seem to matter how intense you're going. So research shows that there's this molecule called neuropeptide Y that's released during light exercise. And research from my lab shows that this light to moderate exercise is enough to reduce anxiety in everybody, but especially in people who are high anxious. And so neuropeptide Y is this really cool molecule that interacts with the amygdala and the amygdala is a center for emotional regulation, but it's, it's really a threat detector. It, it responds with fear, it activates the stress response, and it's really hyperactive in people with anxiety disorders. And so neuropeptide Y seems to protect the brain from trauma and anxiety. And so research shows now that exercise, even at this light intensity, is enough to promote an upregulation of neuropeptide Y.
2: I think a lot of people can anecdotally relate to the fact that, you know, we feel better after exercise, our mood is better, we just have a better day overall. But often it's so hard to just get motivated. And I've often wondered why that is. Even though I know I'm going to feel better afterwards, it's still hard for me to to start?
7: Well, I mean, it's because exercising is hard. (laughs) I mean, it's hard work and it's a physical stressor. And so both of these things are things that the brain does not want us to do. So if we think about when the brain evolved, it was at a time prehistorically when we had to hunt and gather our food, expending a lot of energy to do so. And so the brain, when we're not moving for survival, it wants us to conserve energy and stay still. (laughs) And so the brain kind of makes us lazy. And if we flash forward to today, we don't really have to move to survive. And so the brain is there trying to talk us out of it, like, uh, you're too tired. Exercising is hard. You don't even have time right now. You know, that, that constant rebuttal in the brain.
2: You know, some people exercise because they know it's going to make them feel better. They know it's going to make them feel less anxious. Some people exercise because they want to look ripped mm-hmm. or they want to lose 20 pounds. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Does any of this matter or is it just good to get in the gym?
7: hmm Well, yes, yes, it does matter. (laughs) And there's a few different parts that I can play on this. So one thing that we have noticed in our research is there has been a shift in why people want to work out. And this was particularly around the pandemic. So right at the beginning of the pandemic, we surveyed 1,600 people just to see how they were doing. And we asked them, are you exercising Know if so, why or what's your motivation to? And before the pandemic, it was really about I want to look good, you know. And then Mm -hmm. during the pandemic, it was, you know, I want to feel good, you know, I'm working out to feel good. There was this shift from physical to mental. And so, when we're working out for mental health, we have to get rid of this idea of like performance and like how many calories are we burning. None of that matters. All that matters is that we're moving our body, and so. When we think about this shift uh, in what's motivating us, it it does really matter. And sometimes what can happen is that we can be exercising for you know a physical goal, but the reality is that physical transformations from exercise take a long time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? And the, the but the mental transformations from exercise can happen almost immediately. Like immediately after every single workout, you feel good. And I think that this shift will actually help people stick with it longer.
2: Yeah. And I think just not thinking about it as a chore, That's right, but thinking about it as, oh, this is going to be fun. Mm-hmm. I can turn this into a little game. I can see if I can beat my time. I do that sometimes <laughs> in the pool, you know, where I'm just like swimming against myself. Those things make it kind of fun.
7: Yeah, like playing. You're being a little bit creative and, and playful with the activity. Rather than thinking about it like a workout, take the work out of it and think of it just like as a, you know, it's a time for self-care. When it really comes to exercise for health and longevity, the key is consistency. So do something that you're going to want to do for the rest of your life and make it fun. Jennifer
2: Heiss is the director of the NeuroFit Lab at McMaster University in Ontario, Canada. You're listening to The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Jennifer and I talked about the motivation for getting in shape. And I think, honestly, for a lot of people, myself included, looks are part of the equation. And with all of these fitness influencers showing off their perfect bodies, getting into shape often becomes about chasing an ideal, a more beautiful, stronger version of ourselves, what we should be like and look like. Pulse reporter Grant Hill felt that pressure as a teenager and he always looked to a classmate for inspiration, somebody who seemed like a natural athlete, immune to those kinds of pressures. That classmate later became a fitness influencer. When Grant recently reconnected with him, he got a better picture of that life outside of the Instagram feed. A big part of
8: middle school is realizing you're not special. A necessary, though sometimes painful, lesson. Your class size balloons, and suddenly you're losing at something you didn't even know was a competition. There's theater auditions, advanced math. You're not even the only person named Grant in your grade anymore. There were now two of us me and Grant Tamutis. This other Grant always looked so confident, athletic. He stood effortlessly straight and could probably do more push ups than all our phys ed teachers combined.
9: As a kid, I just was that climber, monkey-type boy. I was just, like, on the playground, climbing everything that
8: I could, basically. He just seemed immune to the pressures of proving himself. In high school, everyone looked for ways to show that we were special after all. We just needed to find our niche, our thing. Like many of my guy friends, I turned to fitness, lifting weights, the gym. By then, Grant Timutis was running cross-country, wrestling, I, on the other hand, threw up at basketball tryouts. Tryouts. Still, as life got more complicated, fitness provided a simple formula of happiness for me and many of the boys in my class. Lift more today than you did the day before. Jump higher. Grow faster. We followed all the burgeoning new fitness stars on social media with a dash of this protein powder and these remarkably expensive elastic bands Anything was possible. Fitness wasn't just a lifestyle, it was a life plan. Secretly, as you may have guessed by now, I felt inadequate, like I was just not cutting it. And shockingly, it turns out, so did the other Grant. I recently caught up with him. and I can absolutely relate
9: to that feeling of, like, I'm not good enough or I'm not, like, you know, strong enough compared to these guys who,
8: like... Grant and I didn't talk much in high school, But I kept up with him after graduation from afar on Instagram when he got into these really challenging adult obstacle courses. And it was a Navy SEAL-designed
9: obstacle race. And I got to run with the Navy SEAL who
8: designed it. He seemed unstoppable and absolutely yoked. He studied kinesiology and philosophy in college and began thinking about fitness a little differently. He started doing yoga. If I take care of myself
9: like a, not just a machine, but like an organism, like what does my body need for
8: like food and sleep? And he wanted to be a fitness coach, started advertising his services online. It was difficult. Making a name for himself in this crowded field meant even his niche needed a niche. I think I remember uh, there was a time when you were just eating all fruit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about that time or you feel comfortable talking about that? Yeah, that's it. Literally, it would probably
9: be a whole nother podcast to talk about experience. But
8: he ate nuts too, along with nutritional bars. But for the most part, yeah, he became a fruitarian. It wasn't some cynical marketing gimmick, but it wasn't bad for growing an audience either. He became a zealot on Instagram. I bought into the whole thing as like, oh, maybe I can just do this the rest of my life. (laughs) You know, but... He got to know other fruitarians, spent his days foraging for wild persimmons, taking fruit-themed photo shoots near creeks, lifting tree trunks in the forest. It was like about four years where I was focused on that. And he felt great for a time. Soon, he started getting thinner and thinner, losing muscle and sleep. Experiencing digestive issues. Eventually, he had no choice but to cheat. There's a
9: point where I was like, wait, now I'm starting to like eat all this other stuff that I I told myself I wouldn't eat, and so I'm like going against that principle or that dogma
8: or that idea. In time, Grant left fruitarianism behind, along with its zealots. He wasn't exactly excommunicated from the community for cheating on his diet, but Sometimes it felt like he was. I think
9: I just learned a lot about just listening more to my body than to any kind of ideology. So I was like,
8: hey. The likes and comments on his Instagram started to disappear.
9: Hey guys, I'm just curious. uh, Which hurt. Do you guys generally see my posts? Because I rarely, rarely get responses. So I'm curious if there's...
8: It's easy to get wrapped up in the numbers we use to compare ourselves to one another whether with a dumbbell or a smartphone. But Grant has bounced back from that period. He's still carrying logs outside and teaching boutique fitness classes. I decided to give one a try.
9: But we're essentially going to put the stick, like, kind of inside this lead
8: leg. And yeah. I was surprised to find only two other participants there, who, to my relief, were not super ripped.
1: You know, I'm 53, so... Uh, If I try to move a certain way that I haven't moved that way in a long time, I can't quite get there.
8: Soon, we were all pulling ropes, hanging off a wooden ladder, stretching obscure muscles.
9: Just kind of get into your flow, open the shoulder.
8: I had expected to get my ass kicked, maybe even pass out. Instead, I was crawling on the floor on all fours, focusing on my breath, intention, movement. Not competition. It's like I never uh, find myself in this position in my everyday life. uh, It was fun. That's why these guys like the class. Research a little bit about Grant and some of his work that he does outdoors in nature brings back
1: like childhood play, you know.
8: I spoke with Grant afterwards, hoping he'd let me in on his secret plan for perfect abs. Some big change I could make to set me apart. He suggested I take a different approach. Sometimes it's really
9: about like, hey, my ego wants me to take this giant leap, but really my heart is telling me just do the little step today. Just get yourself momentum.
8: I was never a monkey kid like Grant, but I was a kid, one who enjoyed running, jumping, even occasionally carrying stuff through the woods. And maybe through movement, Grant tells me, I can find that kid
9: again. So having that perspective of like, hey, my wellness, my fitness doesn't have to be, you know, superb. Like, I just find the meaning of what it means to me.
2: That story was reported by Grant Hill. Coming up, what do you do when you hate exercise, but you're afraid you're hurting your health by sitting all day? I'm all bundled up, and I'm going to go outside and take my five-minute walk. That's next on The Pulse. Oh, it's so bright. Oh,
7: it's so cold. windy.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Capella University. With Capella's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Support for NPR and the following message come from Rosetta Stone, the perfect app to achieve your language learning goals no matter how busy your schedule gets. It's designed to maximize study time with immersive 10-minute lessons and audio practice for your commute. Plus, tailor your learning plan for specific objectives like travel. Get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off and unlimited access to 25 language courses. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Amgen, a biotechnology pioneer leading the fight against the world's toughest diseases such as cancer, heart disease, asthma, and osteoporosis. In a new era of human health, Amgen continues to accelerate the pace of change, operating sustainably and drawing upon deep knowledge of science to push beyond what's known today. With each decade, they reliably deliver powerful new therapies to patients. Learn more at amgen.com.
2: Major funding for The Pulse is provided by a leadership gift from the Sutherland Fund. The Sutherlands support WHYY and its commitment to the production of programs that improve our quality of life. This is The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. We're talking about fitness and the importance of exercise. And let's be real, a lot of us don't get enough exercise, and some of us don't get any exercise at all. Why are you looking at me like that, Mike? (laughs) It's very accusatory. (laughs) I'm looking at Pulse reporter Liz Tung. And Liz, you said in a meeting that you don't exercise. Yeah, that is true. Liz used to ride her bike to work every day, but then COVID hit, we all started working from home more, and now there are days when she really doesn't move much at all. And I sit, like, all day. On a beanbag chair in her living room.
6: And I did start to get a little bit concerned that this was, like, not good for me, because sometimes my husband would be like, oh, let's take a walk. And I'd be like, I'm so tired from sitting all day long.
2: And the research is kind of alarming about sitting. I mean, it's been associated with all kinds of health conditions from diabetes to high blood pressure, heart disease. What else? Cancer. That was the
6: one that blew my mind. I was like, how is sitting leading to people getting cancer? But it just seems like there is this whole host of uh, really damaging effects that sitting has on the body. Like it actually does seem like it's really, really bad for your health.
2: So Liz was wondering how much exercise she would have to do to offset the negative impact from sitting so much. And the recommendations were all over the place, everything from just minutes a day to well over an hour.
6: And so I found that not to be very helpful because I didn't really know who to believe. So I decided to reach out to a researcher named Keith Diaz. He's an associate professor of behavioral medicine at Columbia University Medical Center, And he said that my question is actually what everybody wants to know right now.
1: What is the least amount of movement somebody could do to offset the harms of sitting?
2: Keith explained a little bit more why sitting is so bad for us. One idea is that it leads to elevated blood sugar levels because the energy we're taking in from food is not used. The muscles take
1: sugar out of the blood. The thing is the muscles only do that when they're being used because they need energy. But when you don't use your muscles, when you sit for hours at a time, your muscles don't take the sugar out of the bloodstream, and that can be really harmful.
2: Over time, elevated sugar levels can damage nerves and blood vessels, and that makes sitting detrimental.
6: Yeah, so that's the first theory. The second theory is kind of similar, except it has to do with our blood lipid levels.
2: Which are your fats in
1: your bloodstream as well. And it's the same concept. If you're not using your muscles, the muscles Don't take the lipids out of the bloodstream and help to control them and break them down.
6: And then the third theory is that sitting raises your blood pressure.
1: So when you sit, you're bending your knees. And it's very similar. Let's think about your blood vessels as a hose. When you bend your knees, you're putting a kink in the line.
6: So basically, you're putting a kink in the line, and you're exposing the blood vessels in your legs to really harmful pressure.
2: And you're sitting like... All crooked on your beanbag chair. (laughs) Yeah. The way I sit is
6: like maximum hose kinkage. Like, there is no way blood is getting, it's probably just like pooled in my legs and then like stuck there.
2: Now, some people try to exercise once a day to offset all of that sitting, but Keith tested out a different approach. What if people took short exercise breaks throughout the day? He calls them exercise snacks. Could that cancel out the harmful effects of sitting? He tried different intervals, like sit for an hour and take a short one, five, or ten-minute walk, or sit for only half an hour before taking your walk.
6: So the good news is that all of the walking breaks decreased blood pressure, but only one had a major effect on blood sugar.
1: We found that walking five minutes every half hour reduce the surge in blood sugar after eating by 60%.
2: So a five-minute movement break after just half an hour of sitting seemed to be the most effective, but... That sounds like a lot in terms of making time for it so frequently. Liz decided to give it a try, and she recorded her efforts. It was still pretty cold out then in Philadelphia.
6: Okay, so it is day one of Operation Stop Sitting all day, and I'm going to go outside and take my five-minute walk. Oh, it's so cold. It's windy. It is 2.28, time for... Walk number two. Oh, I hate the wind. I hate these loud ass cars going by. I hate whatever this is. Oh my God, I hate this thing. It's 4 15. I got sick of going outside. So I'm taking a walk around the office. Very self conscious about talking to myself. On the plus side, opportunity for stairs here. Okay, here we go. If I weren't doing this story, I think I probably would have given up on the five-minute walk every half hour, like, after, probably on this walk. So, yeah, that was the last walk that I took. And I have to say, it was both more annoying and less annoying than i thought it would be like i thought that the most annoying part would be interrupting my work every 30 minutes to like get up and go on a walk and I was kind of 50 50 there like the first few times I was like oh this is great i'm like breaking my work into 30 minute chunks and that it's helping me wrap things up sooner than i might have otherwise but as the afternoon went on i like did have something that i couldn't or i didn't want to interrupt and then that like threw off my schedule. So I think it's probably pretty unrealistic for most people to be able to follow like a strict every half hour walking schedule. And this is something I brought up with Keith, hoping that he was going to give me some answers for what the solution is or like how it's actually fine. Um, And then this is what he answered.
1: Yeah. So full disclosure, I am unable to take a movement break every half hour. Could I do it? Yes. But I find it terribly interrupting when I'm in the middle of something. I just find it really hard to to pull away.
2: Keith told Liz that he has other ways to keep moving, like a cycling desk at the office. And he takes lots of walking meetings where he's walking while talking. And that inspired Liz to try to find some ways to move a little bit throughout the day.
6: But the funny thing is, Keith basically told me that we shouldn't actually focus so much on these numbers, on getting the quote-unquote right amount of exercise.
1: Actually, the most health benefit you get is going from zero minutes of exercise to 10 minutes or 20 minutes or 30 minutes. That We call it a steep early slope. The greatest benefits you get are from going from inactive to active. And I think people need to recognize that even if you fall short that's okay that any movement helps and is beneficial and of course
6: I told my husband about all of this and now he's insisting that we take a walk every night after dinner which I don't love but he's like but it'll control our blood sugar and I'm like okay (laughs) so I guess the whole thing has grudgingly moved me into doing a little bit more movement every day yeah thank you Liz thanks Megan
2: That's our show for this week. The Pulse is a production of WHYY in Philadelphia. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Our health and science reporters are Alan Yu, Liz Tung, and Grant Hill. Marcus Biddle is our health equity fellow. Charlie Kyer is our engineer. Our producers are Nicole Curry and Lindsay Lazarski. I'm Mike and Scott. Thank you for listening.
0: Support for NPR and the following message come from Bombas. Bombas makes absurdly soft socks, underwear, and T-shirts. And for every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Get 20% off your first purchase at bombas.com slash NPR and use code NPR.
3: What does it mean that Trump's mugshot recalls Paris Hilton's? What does the fake resume of George Santos tell us about American myths? What if I told you that the Kardashians are the new Kennedys? On It's Been a Minute, I give you fresh ways of thinking about what's going on. Listen every week to It's Been a Minute from NPR.